0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, described as the presumptive Pope of the Evangelicals, yet so little is known. In 2011, the Evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen, and I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham. Whether in the West or in the Third World, a hallmark of Stott's ministry, has been expository preaching that addresses not only the hearts, but also the minds of contemporary men and women. Today's message is Freedom from the Slavery of Self. introduction, we have seen that the concept of freedom in Christian thought is a positive and not a negative concept. It's a question not primarily of being free from something, but of being set free for somebody. And if you were to ask what it is that we are freed for as Christians, I think we must answer that we are free to be ourselves that is free to be our true self, according to the nature which God made. Hence this phrase, the glorious liberty of the children of God, which I've used before, uh, means that we are set free to love and to serve and to enjoy our Heavenly Father as His children. Now, in order to experience this freedom for God freedom to be my true self, as God meant me to be, in relation to him and others, I need to be set free from various tyrannies which inhibit the enjoyment of this freedom. And this is what we've been thinking about. First, we began with freedom from the condemnation of God. Second, freedom from the opinions of men. And now, thirdly, today, I want to talk about freedom from the bondage of self freedom from the bondage of self and the passage of scripture i bring you is in the 8th chapter of the gospel of john john chapter 8 and i would like to read to you from verse 31 in the revised standard version john 8:31 jesus then said to the jews who had believed in him if you continue in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anybody. How is it that you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever. The son continues forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. From this important passage, I would like to draw out two major truths. The first is that sin brings bondage. Verse 34. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Sin brings bondage. And the second is that truth brings freedom. Verse 32. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Let's look at those two today. Firstly, Sin brings bondage. You'll observe how indignant the Jews were when Jesus Christ told them that the truth would set them free. They said, in effect, what on earth are you talking about? Set us free. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anybody. What do you mean that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Nowhere, I think, in the teaching of Jesus, did he assert more forthrightly than this, that sin brings us into bondage, that in fact everybody by nature is a slave, because everybody by nature is a sinner. There is in each of us this root, this tough, fibrous root of self-centeredness. Martin Luther described unregenerate man as homo in se incurvatus, that is, man turned in on himself, or, as I think we could even better translate it, man who is bent, crookedly bent in on himself. The phrase seems to combine the two ideas, that man is twisted and that his twist is a self-centred, self-imprisoning twist. I wonder if anybody who is listening to me doubts this fact. An interesting example of it is uh, from that great public servant, Doug Hammarskjöld, the former uh, United Nations Secretary General. He was a deeply committed public servant. He was described as W.H. Auden as a great, good and lovable man. But it's interesting that in uh, the book called Markings that includes a lot of his uh, autobiographical uh, writing and diary uh, entries. It's quite obvious that Doug Hummershot had a very different opinion of himself. He defined original sin as that dark counter-center of evil in our nature, and he bemoaned it in himself. He wrote in his diary in April 1957, "...not to brood over my pettiness." with masochistic self-disgust. Not to take a pride in admitting it, but to recognise it as a threat to my integrity of action the moment I let it out of my sight. Again, how selfish and aesthetic our so-called sympathy usually is. There come times when, momentarily, we can serve as the foundation for somebody else's faith in himself, a faith that is constantly being threatened in all of us. When this happens... What we do to make it possible for him to go on, we tend to make the foundation for our own life-preserving self-esteem. One other quotation from October 57, he wrote, "You, speaking to himself in his diary, you have allowed your hunger for justice to make you self-conscious so that in the performance of your task you no longer forget yourself. Here are the honest jottings of what W.H. Auden described as a great, good, and lovable man, a man who is conscious nevertheless of this deeply ingrained self-centeredness, so that he could not cultivate self-forgetfulness. I think we must say that our self-centeredness is a prison, from which, if we are left to ourselves, we cannot escape. Self cannot liberate from self. This means, when you stop to think about it, that the personal freedom which is so loudly proclaimed today, freedom from moral absolutes, freedom from ethical restrictions and restraints, is not freedom at all. It's bondage to our lower nature. If I throw off all external moral authority and claim freedom to be my own master and do my own thing... I find that I am my own slave instead. The free and unfettered expression of my own self-centeredness is not freedom at all. It's slavery. Hence, as in Christ's day, so in ours, there are many people who think they are free and who boast of their freedom, who, in reality, are slaves, just as Jesus said. Again and again, the Bible warns us of this. There have always been false teachers offering personal freedom through moral anarchy. But their so-called freedom is an illusion. Listen, for example, to the words of 2 Peter 1.19. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. It's the same with the concept of free will. Free will is not freedom to do absolutely anything I like. For when my will chooses evil, it thereby proves that it's not free, but enslaved to my selfish nature. Only when my will chooses what is good is it truly free, free to love and serve both God and man. Christian people, then, are described in Romans 6.22 as having been set free from sin and become the slaves of God. I rather like a phrase that Peter Marshall uh, used when he was uh, chaplain to the United States Senate, and opening a Senate session, his prayer one day included this petition. Make us to see that liberty is not the right to do as we please, but the opportunity to please to do what is right. True freedom, then, is freedom to be myself, so long as you add my true self. It's not freedom to be what I want to be, according to the urges of my lower and self-centered nature. It's freedom to be what God wants me to be and what he meant me to be when he made me in his own image and remade me in Jesus Christ. True freedom is found neither in the power of self-assertion nor in the weakness of self-indulgence, but in the discipline of self-control and self-denial and in the love called self-sacrifice when our self is given to serve God and man. All this is fundamental to the teaching of Jesus, that to live for myself is bondage and death, whereas to die to myself and to live for others is freedom and life. He expressed it in his well-known epigram and paradox, he who saves himself loses himself. It's he who loses himself who finds himself. Of this uh, epigram or paradox, this principle, the cross of Jesus Christ is the supreme example. Listen to how Michael Ramsey, Archbishop of Canterbury, expresses it in the little booklet I've already quoted, entitled Freedom, Faith, and the Future. He writes, amidst the strains and conflicts of our quest for freedom, we can recall the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus. In that scene, those who brought about the death of Jesus believed that they were acting in their freedom and that Jesus was stripped of his freedom in being done to death. In fact, however, they all were fast bound in the compulsive actions of prejudice and selfishness And in Jesus alone, true freedom is seen. For the way of freedom is to die to live, to give self away so that self may be realized. That is the freedom of the sons of God. So far, then, I've been talking on this first statement that sin brings bondage. Now I want to spend the rest of my time on the second affirmation, which is the truth brings bondage. Freedom. The statement of Jesus in verse 32, that the truth will set you free, has often been quoted out of context. Indeed, even then, as a universal maxim, it is true because all falsehood enslaves while all truth liberates. Take science as an example. The notorious flat earthers who, in defiance of the evidence, insist that the earth is flat are exercising a kind of free thought. But it's the freedom of fantasy. It's not the freedom of truth. They're actually in bondage to their prejudice, shutting their eyes uh, to the truth and shutting themselves off from reality. And that is not true freedom. The truth that liberates from sin, however, is not scientific truth, truth about the universe, It's moral and spiritual truth, truth about God and man, about good and evil. I want to try and spell this out as practically as I can. What is the truth that liberates us from self? I give you five answers. A, the truth about evil. The very first step towards the conquest of evil is the recognition of evil. It's impossible to defeat an enemy if the enemy remains unidentified. So we cannot set ourselves against evil if we don't know what evil is. The first tactic the devil used was to throw doubt on the difference between good and evil. God had said, you may freely eat, note incidentally, the freedom he gave, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of one tree you shall not eat, and on the day you do you shall die. God clearly specified the one thing that was forbidden, and he warned of the judgment that would follow disobedience. But the devil came and said, Did God say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, and you will not die? He thus denied that evil was evil, and he denied that it would be punished. The devil's strategy has not changed. In our generation, he seems to have been conspicuously successful. The devil occupies himself in blurring moral issues. He denies that there are such things as moral absolutes. He ridicules those who hold that there are. He deceives people that there is no wrath of God, no judgment, no hell. But the first reason why Jesus Christ himself was so successful in resisting the devil is that his moral senses had not been dulled. He knew truth, uh, the truth about evil. He could counter every suggestion of the devil with the words, Begone Satan, because it stands written, you shall not. We need this clear-sighted recognition of evil. We need to have our faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil, which is a phrase in Hebrews 5.14. So that's the first thing, the truth about evil. Be the truth about goodness. The truth about evil is that it's hateful, contrary to the will of God. The truth about goodness is that it is desirable, because in accordance with the will of God. If the devil is the purveyor of evil, God is good and sets himself to create and to promote goodness. The Bible leaves us in no doubt about this, whatever. It tells us that the ultimate purpose of God's predestination is that we should be conformed to the image of his Son. And the ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ's death is that we should die to sin and live to righteousness. And the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit's indwelling is to sanctify us or make us holy. Here are the three persons of the Trinity united in seeking the righteousness, the holiness, the Christlikeness of the people of God. We need to meditate on these things. They tell us the truth about goodness. Goodness is God's will. It should be our will too. We should seek first as our supreme good God's reign. And God's righteousness. See the truth about ourselves and that is that in our fallen state with a nature twisted with self-centeredness we are unable to resist the evil and choose the good. We've already seen that Jesus said we're in bondage and it's indispensable to our liberation to know the truth about our bondage. If we think that we're free already We shall never long to be set free. Only if we know the truth about ourselves—that we are the slaves of our own self-centeredness—will we cry to God to set us free. It's out of the out of our own self despair that faith is born. I would like to suggest to you that a major reason for our continuing moral defeat as Christian people is that we think we can manage by ourselves. We constantly forget how ingrained in our fallen nature our selfishness is, and we forget the principalities and powers that are arrayed against us. So we're foolish enough to go forth to the conflict each day unarmed. Only when we see the strength and subtlety and unscrupulous wickedness of our enemy shall we understand Paul's therefore take unto you the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. Only then shall we learn the word of Jesus, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. This is the truth about ourselves, our weakness. D, the truth about God. And the truth about God that I'm thinking of now is that he's both able and willing to overcome evil in us and to make us good. The scripture dwells much on this. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be opened to know the truth about God's power, that the power available for us today is the very power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to heaven. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ conquered the powers of evil, He disarmed principalities and powers at the cross, and that when he was exalted to heaven, he was exalted far above every principality and power, and all things were put under his feet. Paul adds that the power of the Holy Spirit is amply sufficient to subdue our flesh, our evil nature, and to bring forth the fruit of love and joy and peace. And he writes not only of the power of God, but of the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful, He will not allow us to be tempted beyond our strength. That brings me E, fifthly, to the truth about Christians, namely that the Christian is a new person who has begun a new life. On this truth, the Apostle Paul repeatedly insists. He keeps asking with astonished indignation in his letters, but don't you know? For example, When the Romans, the Roman Christians, wondered whether, since God continues to forgive, they could continue to sin, Paul replies, but don't you know that you've been baptized into Christ? And don't you know that your union with Christ through faith and baptism is a union with him in his death and resurrection? In other words, you've begun a new life. How can you talk about relapsing into the old? Again, when the Corinthian Christians were tempted to immorality, tempted, the Greek word, to Corinthianize, means to indulge in immorality, Paul says, but don't you know that your bodies are the members of Christ and the temples of the Holy Spirit? In other words, if only you knew the truth about yourselves and about your bodies as Christian people, you'd never misuse them. Or again, a third example, when the Ephesian Christians shared signs of living like pagans. Paul writes to them, you didn't so learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and been taught the truth as it is in Jesus, namely that you put off the old manner of life and put on a new one. Do you get it? In each case, what Paul did was to draw the attention of his Christian readers to the incompatibility of sin and the Christian. Sin and the Christian just don't mix. Remember the truth about yourselves, he says, that you're God's children, united to Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and then live a life that is consistent with who and what you are. It is then in such ways as these that the truth can set us free. We must know the truth about evil its hatefulness and the judgment that will fall upon it. We must know the truth about goodness, its desirability as the eternal purpose of God. We must know the truth about man, his impotence against the strength of the enemy, the truth about God, his power and his faithfulness, and the truth about the Christian and the entirely new life that the Christian has begun. Let this truth abide in you, Jesus says, and it will set you free. Well, how, you say? What does it mean in practice? It means, I think, that we must so order our lives as to to beware of the insidious influence of falsehood. And we must expose ourselves instead to the beneficent influence of truth. We Christians don't make sufficient allowance for the massive attack on the standards of Christ which the world launches today. The mass media, radio, television, the papers, magazines, theatre, cinema, advertisements. Well, there is much that is wholesome in them, it's true. But also sex, crime, war, violence, human conceit, blasphemy, covetousness, All these things are not only portrayed but actually glorified. It's relentless. Day in, day out, the glorification of evil as something that is common, natural, and harmless seeps into our homes. And as it does so, there is a subtle weakening of our moral resistance, an undermining of the protective dykes of goodness. We lose our sensitivity, our emotional reactions are blunted, We no longer recoil in horror from evil or hunger and thirst after righteousness. We become soft, compromised, corrupted, defiled. So there is an urgent need that we should engage in exercises to counteract this influence. Jesus says in verse 31, if you continue in my truth, you will be my disciples indeed. The disciple is not content with an occasional superficial acquaintance with christ's teaching he continues in christ's word he listens to it meditates on it allows it to sink down into his ears how many hours do we spend listening to the radio reading the papers watching television then how much time do we like mary sit at jesus feet listening to his word is it comparable i tell you if we do our imagination will be fired with the beauty of holiness our appetite whetted for righteousness our heart inflamed with the love of god our resolve strengthened to obey god and our faith quickened in the promises of god and our will taken captive to do his will so I conclude, sin enslaves, truth liberates. But if the truth is to liberate, we must know it. If we know it, if we are to know it, we must continue in Christ's word. And only then shall we be truly his disciples. We shall know the truth and the truth will set us free. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.